Our scripture lesson is taken from John chapter 5, beginning at, I begin reading at verse 19, but uh, my text begins at verse 24, page 1226, 1226, John chapter 5, beginning reading at verse 19 and reading through verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him even greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, Even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, this is the third time now that we are looking at John chapter 5, in which the attitude of the Jews toward Jesus, particularly the attitude of the Jewish leadership, has changed from curiosity and suspicion to outright hatred and Uh, great opposition. They uh, are very angry with Jesus because he has, in their minds, violated the Sabbath by healing on the Sabbath and telling other people to carry their bed on the Sabbath and so forth, encouraging other people to break the Sabbath. But even the, the act of healing on the Sabbath, they considered to be a violation of the Sabbath. And they were angry with him because he made himself equal with God. In that regard, uh, they were right. Jesus was making himself equal with the Father. However, not in the way that they thought he was doing it. They thought that uh, Jesus was claiming to be another God alongside of the true God, as if there were two gods, a kind of polytheism, That's what they understood Jesus to be thinking or saying. But Jesus corrected them and pointed out that though 
He is equal to the Father. He's not another God. But they are one God, and that is evidenced by the fact that they do everything exactly the same. Whatever the Son sees the Father doing, that and that only is what the Son does. Whatever the Father says, that's what the Son says. And then Jesus says, you'll see even greater things than these, and that is that uh, as the the Father has uh, life in himself, so the, the Son has life in himself. As the Father can grant life, so can the Son grant life. And the Father has, doesn't judge anyone, although the Father has the prerogative and the authority to judge. He has given all authority to judge to the Son. So they're exactly alike in everything. Uh, they, they both have, uh, uh, they, they say the same thing, they do the same thing. They both have authority to grant life. They both have authority to judge. And uh, Jesus mimics his Father in every way so that they are one in essence. They are two persons, but one in essence. There is a a unity there that uh, boggles the mind, something that uh, is not apparent in anything else in creation. We can't compare this to something else to say, well, you know, if you want to understand it, compare it to this. It's, It's just like this. No, it is unique. It is utterly unique, and uh, therefore, it's something that we have to learn to believe, because uh, it's it's revealed to us that the Father and the Son, and later on, Scripture says the Holy Spirit, are each uh, unique persons, but because of their unity, they are one in essence and one God. Well, it is the latter two things that um, are mentioned in verses uh, 22 and 23 about, uh, or, or excuse me, uh, 21 and uh, 22 of uh, this chapter, that uh, the granting of life and the um, uh, authority to judge that uh, we want to explore a little more here in verses 24 through 30 by uh, taking note that indeed Jesus does grant life and ask the question to whom has he given life to whom has jesus given life and he tells us he says that whoever hears my words and believes most assuredly i say to you and that most assuredly is sometimes in other bibles uh, translated truly truly i say unto you which is the force of uh, taking an oath Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Everlasting life belongs to those who hear and believe. And not everyone who hears believes. But uh, those who do hear and believe, he says, they have everlasting life. Now, please note the, the careful way in which Jesus says this. He doesn't say, he who hears and believes is given everlasting life. He says, he who hears and believes has everlasting life. In other words, everlasting life is not the reward 
of believing, but believing is the evidence of having everlasting life. If you believe, you have it, not if you believe, you'll get it. In other words, the gift precedes the believing. Now, we saw this same sort of thing in John chapter 3 when we considered the matter of the new birth. The new birth is the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit uh, uh, is like the wind that uh, blows wherever it uh, wants to. Uh, God is sovereign. God is in control of those to whom he gives the new birth. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. It's not up to a human decision. We are born not of a human decision or of a father's will, but born of God. Now, the same thing is true with regard to the bestowal of everlasting life. God bestows it, and the evidence that one has received it is that he hears the word of God and believes. Jesus says not only that uh, those who uh, hear him uh, and believe, uh, but not only those who believe him uh, are believing in him, but they're also believing in the one who who sent him. Again, emphasizing that if you believe me, you believe the Father, because we say the same thing. And uh, you can't uh, have Jesus without having the Father. You can't have the Father without having Jesus, as it says in other parts of the Scripture. Uh, These things go together. But uh, Jesus uh, says that uh, he who believes has eternal life. I believe that's uh, John 6, verse 47. He who believes has it. Not he who believes will get it. Uh, It's not uh, you do your part, you believe, believing is your part, and then God will reward faith as a meritorious work uh, uh, with the gift of eternal life. No, God bestows the new birth. He bestows the, the gift of faith, and with it, the gift of eternal life. And you can know that you have it by the evidence of your faith. Now, what is this eternal life that Jesus says he gives? He is, has within himself the right to bestow life, and he calls it eternal life. Why does he call it eternal life? Or what is eternal life that he's bestowing sovereignly and graciously upon those uh, who have uh, believed in him. Uh, Well, it's uh, to understand that phrase eternal life, we need to say, first of all, it's not merely eternal existence. That's that's not what it's all about. It is certainly eternal existence, but uh, if that's all that you understand by it, you understand very little about it. Eternal life is, first of all, uh, escape from condemnation and death. He says, uh, they, have, uh, they shall not come into judgment, but have passed from death to life. Those who have eternal life will not come into judgment. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are already under the sentence of death. Uh, In John 3, verse 18, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The moment you and I are born into this world, 
And even before, when we are conceived in sin, we are under condemnation. We are deserving of death. We are conceived and born with a sinful nature. And that sinful nature entitles us to judgment. God has passed judgment. He has passed sentence. We are all under condemnation because of our sinful nature and because of our actual sins as well when we begin to uh, disobey as we come into this life. We're all under condemnation. We're all uh, under the sentence of death. You know, right now, if, if you're not a Christian, you're like a person who has been on trial for a capital crime, found guilty, and sentenced to death, and sent to death row. Uh, you're there on death row. You're still alive, but you're under condemnation. You're under the sentence of death, and the only thing that uh, hasn't happened yet is that the The sentence hasn't been carried out. You're under condemnation and awaiting for the sentence to be carried out. That's the state of every human being apart from Christ. The glorious good news of the gospel is that those who have believed have escaped that. Or in the words of Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you're under condemnation and awaiting the carrying out of the sentence of death that you deserve for your sins. But if you have eternal life, you have passed from death to life. The governor has pardoned you and given you a complete pardon. And the warden has come and opened the jail cell and led you out and said, uh, you found favor in the eyes of the authority. You were under condemnation. You were sentenced to death, but I have the authority to set you free now. And so everyone who believes in Jesus, who has eternal life, has passed from death to life. You've been set free. There is now no condemnation. It's a glorious liberty of the children of God. That's the first part of eternal life. And if that's all it was, it would, it would be great, but it's, it's not all there is with regard to eternal life. Eternal life is also knowing God, knowing the Father and knowing the Son. Jesus expresses that very clearly in his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What does it mean to know God? Well, that harkens back to the beginning and, and to the purpose for our creation. You know, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden is called Paradise. And it was Paradise not because It was a beautiful garden full of beautiful flowers and delicious fruit. It certainly was full of beautiful flowers and delicious fruit. Uh, uh, The Garden of Eden reflected the glory of God in a wonderful way. But what made it paradise was that God came there. And Adam and Eve could have fellowship with God. They could know God intimately and personally and and experience the nearness and power of his love. 
You know, God didn't need to create people in his own image. He did not need to create the universe. He was perfect and complete in himself. He had perfect love within the Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was perfect love, infinite love, eternal love. They didn't need anyone or anything. But out of his great love, he decided to create creatures who could appreciate how wonderful he is and have fellowship with him and be drawn into the circle of love that is the Trinity. That's what it means to to know God. It's to experience his love. It's to, to be with him and have fellowship with him and know him. And it's so sad when when people would rather enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, as it says in Hebrews 12, <laughs> enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season rather than knowing God, rather than having fellowship with Him. Yes, sin, sin has its passing pleasures, but they always leave you empty in the end. They're never fully satisfying. And all the things of this world that people delight in are are passing away. The evil things of this world are passing away. What is eternal is God and our relationship with Him. And it would be a a terrible travesty if you think that that money and fame and fortune and uh, physical pleasures are, are more important than fellowship with God. Don't be like those who give up uh, on God in order to indulge the flesh and to live only for the now. Being a Christian isn't always easy. Moses chose to suffer disgrace with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But he was looking forward to the reward. He was looking forward to the new heavens and to the new earth. He was looking forward to the Garden of Eden filling the whole earth, paradise filling the whole earth, and being with God forever. That's what eternal life is all about. And that is what Jesus gives sovereignly to all those who believe in Him. Those who believe in Him may be assured that they have received this from Him. Now, the text describes how Jesus does that. How does he give life? And the answer is through his voice. He gives life through his voice. And that voice sounds at different times to give life in a different way each time. The text speaks about two hours. There is an hour that is coming, period. And there is an hour that is coming and now is. The hour that is coming and now is is mentioned first. And then the hour that is merely coming, but not now is, uh, is future. The idea of the hour coming and now is means that there is a time here and now that will continue. It's now and it is coming. It is continuing. And there is an hour that is totally future, that hasn't started yet. Now, in the hour, 
that is coming and now is, the hour that uh, we live in here and now, uh, Christ gives life through his voice. This uh, uh, language always reminds me of Ezekiel chapter 36. I don't know how familiar you are with Ezekiel 36. It's uh, sort of well known about the, the valley of dry bones where in a vision Ezekiel is shown a valley filled with dry, sun-bleached human bones, dead people, nothing but skeletons there lying on the floor of this valley. And lo and behold, God tells Ezekiel to preach to them. Preach to dead bones? You've got to be kidding. But Ezekiel does it. He preaches to the dead bones. And before his very eyes, flesh begins to form on those dead bones and skin. And the people come to life. They come to life as Ezekiel preaches to them. This is a picture of how God gives life. He gives life through preaching. The New Testament says the same thing regarding you and me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. You've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And this is the good news that was preached to you. You were born again through listening to preaching. On the basis of this text, uh, the Reformers uh, uh, often said that uh, the Word of God exists first as written, then as incarnate, but also as preached. The Word of God is also something that is preached. Now, uh, the Scriptures are infallible. Infallible in the autographer, in the original copies that proceeded from the hand of the prophets and the apostles, not in the copies that we have, but we have so many copies, it's easy to determine where copyists made mistakes, so we have confidence that we have the infallible errant word of God. But the preached word is also the word of God insofar as uh, it adheres to what is written. When you hear the gospel proclaimed from the mouth of a minister, there is a sense in which you are hearing the voice of Jesus Christ. It's startling, I think, humbling to me, that God would use vessels of clay with all sorts of imperfections. But nevertheless, it is the case that as ministers of the gospel proclaim the gospel, the people of God hear Jesus calling to them. And as they hear Jesus calling to them and reaching out to them, the Spirit works in their hearts and brings them that gift of new life and faith. And as they believe, they can be assured through faith that they have been born again and that they have eternal life. Jesus gives life through his voice. If you are a believer, 
It's because you have heard the voice of Jesus in the preaching of the Word, and by the grace of God and through the work of the Spirit, you've come to faith. You have been brought from death to life. Now, he speaks also of an hour that is coming when those who are in the grave will hear his voice. This voice that they hear will be like the voice that Lazarus heard when he was in the grave and Jesus said, come forth. He'd been in the grave for several days. His family was convinced that his body had already become, uh, started to decay and they were probably right. But that didn't stop Jesus. His voice has power. He was the one who spoke, let there be light. And there was light he created out of nothing by the power, by the word of his power. And he can create life also from the dead by his, the word of his power. And he will say, come forth, and the dead will come forth. Those who have done good will be raised to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil will be raised to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, when it says those who have done good to the resurrection of life, some people say, I thought salvation was by grace, not by doing good. What's this doing good that causes people to be raised to the resurrection of life? Well, the good that is being spoken of there is the good of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 3, verse 36 It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Their believing is obeying, and not believing is disobeying. The the good work is the work of believing. John 6, verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. This is the work of God, that you believe. Now, believing is the fruit of that which is, uh, uh, is the fruit of that which God has done in granting the new birth and uh, giving uh, the spirit and so forth. Therefore, we don't claim credit for this good work, but this is not a a contradiction of the gospel. It's not saying that you have to do a lot of good works, you have to obey all the commandments, but it's talking about the obedience of faith, uh, the response to the gospel engendered in us by the Holy Spirit when we hear the gospel. That's what it's uh, talking about. It's also true that, that our good works in obedience to the Ten Commandments, for example, are a window on our hearts. You know, a fruit tree is not made alive by its fruit, but the presence of fruit on a a fruit tree indicates that it is alive. So it is with the fruit of repentance and godly sorrow for sin and the desire to turn from sin. Those are the fruit of the new birth. Uh, They are the fruit of the gift of faith that God has given. And so where there is this good, there is the assurance that that good arises from the prior sovereign work of God in granting faith and new life and granting the new birth. And therefore, 
we can say those who do good will be raised to everlasting life. Not because they do good, but the good is the evidence of the sovereign work of God in their hearts. Now, not everyone who says they believe really do believe. The fruit of repentance and good works, even those works are never perfect, is the evidence that a person has truly believed. And if there is no no repentance, if there is only cold, dull hearts uh, among those who nonetheless profess faith, uh, there can be little ground for assurance. You know, the author of Hebrews says in the first verse of Hebrews 2, we must give earnest heed to what we have heard, lest we drift away. It's so easy to, to hear, to hear the voice of Jesus and to say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. That's really good. I, I, I should take that to heart. And then just go home again and let it go and not think about it again until maybe a week later when you go to church. Oh, yeah, I really should do something with that. I, I really should uh, uh, turn my life around and, and do what, what I know is right. And, and then you go home again and so you, you drift away. You drift uh, into uh, less regular attendance uh, at church, less uh, regular uh, adherence to uh, family devotions or reading daily reading of the Bible. Uh, usually people who, who have professed faith, who do drift away, don't do it all at once. They do it incrementally, bit by bit, week after week, year after year, until finally it becomes evident to everyone and even to the person himself that, yeah, I never really was part of that anyway, so why bother anymore? Take heed. Take heed to yourself. Hear the voice. Hear that voice and respond in faith, respond in repentance, and be assured that through faith your sins are forgiven. The bottom line here is that Jesus is taking an oath that there will be final justice. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, a day is coming when everyone who is in the grave will be raised. And those who are counted righteous for the sake of Christ will be given what Christ deserves, what Christ has earned for them. Christ bore their condemnation Christ fulfilled the law for them in every regard, both actively and passively, and they'll get what Christ deserves. There will be justice, because that has been credited to them. But those who are apart from Christ will also get perfect justice. A perfect justice is something that a lot of people say, you know, I wish, I wish there could be perfect justice. We look in the world today and we see all kinds of miscarriages of justice. We see all kinds of cheating and stealing and lying and, and thievery and, and murder and all kinds of violence and people perpetrating inhumane acts against their own family members. And we say, oh, it's so terrible. Wouldn't it be good if, if these people who are doing all these wicked things could just be called on the carpet and made to answer for their sins? So that there could be peace. 
Well, Jesus is saying that's going to happen. There's an hour coming when that's going to happen. But it won't be just the people who have done great wickedness who will be called on the carpet. Everyone who has sinned will be called on the carpet. Everyone will be called before the justice seat of God and made answerable for their sins. And you should know that there is no sin so small that it is not powerful enough to condemn you to hell forever. It's not just the big sins. The little sins too, because they're, they're all sins against God. They're all putting me ahead of God. Whether it has great consequences in human affairs, or whether it's something that only God notices, the littlest sin is powerful enough to condemn you to hell forever. But the greatest sin, the greatest sins that have ever been committed in human history are not so powerful that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot wash them away. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who hears and believes can be assured that you have passed from death to life. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you have eternal life. You have the beginning of it already in your heart through the gift of the Holy Spirit of righteousness, peace, and joy. And we look forward to that day when He will come and make all things new again. And we will be with Him in paradise forever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, that You have given Him to have life in Himself and to grant eternal life to all who hear His Word and believe. And we thank You that there is coming an hour when He shall exercise judgment, rewarding those who are clothed with His righteousness and punishing those who are standing in their own sins. We pray, Father, that you would strike fear in the hearts of unbelievers so that they may flee to Christ and find in him the assurance that their sins are forgiven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.